I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In this episode, please be advised that there are frank and descriptive discussions of war zones. And if you're affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organizations who are there to help. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. We're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity in their early years to achieve great success. Our guest this week was once a little boy in a refugee camp who had fled Afghanistan amid constant bombing and nearly died of tuberculosis. Yet he managed to flee to Britain with a one-way ticket, starting life in the UK in a Young Offenders Institute and ended up being named as Doctor of the Year. Wahid Aryan has not only spent time during the pandemic working in A&E at the forefront of the fight against Covid, but at the same time the radiologist and emergency specialist is the brains behind a charity, Aryan Teleheal, which provides phone consultations to the sick in war zones. Meanwhile, he's been agonising about his family in Kabul. He has seven sisters still in the country. Welcome to Past Imperfect, Wahid. You must have been exhausted already before the Taliban marched into Kabul. How have the last few weeks been for you? Well, the past few weeks have been traumatic for myself, as it has been for so many people, millions of Afghans, as well as for those refugees who fled Afghanistan because they have family members like myself. Um, For many people who've been through war, they are traumatized. They are affected. The prevalence of PTSD and anxiety, depression in conflict zone is somewhere between 50 to 70 percent, depending on the context. So I came in here with PTSD as well. So my own symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder resurfaced. Thankfully, I'm a doctor, so I recognized and I tried to manage them as well as I could with family support, with exercise, as well as with the help of friends and colleagues. So hard. And are you still in constant contact with your family in Kabul? How are your sisters? I have been in contact on a daily basis with them. And it breaks my heart when I see that they're asking for support, they're asking for guidance. I can't give them a straight answer because this is exactly the situation that I saw myself in 1992 mm-hmm. when the civil war broke out. The ex-president, the Jibalas government, was toppled by the Mujahideen and a street-by-street fight started. And that's what created so much anxiety and uncertainty for the future because people were thinking that it might end up like that. Thankfully, it hasn't ended up that way. But sadly, the country is isolated and the um, economic situation is not good. It must have made you very anxious again, but it's it's even harder when you're trying to either text or get on the phone to your family and, and make decisions about do you flee, do you stay? How did you do that? Did you tell them to stay in their homes? Or, you know, we all saw the pictures of the airport. It must have been incredibly hard to know what to say to your sisters and they must have relied on you as their elder brother. It was really difficult. Usually I have answer or keep thinking about creating an answer 
But on this occasion, because everything happened so rapidly that people are absolutely shell-shocked, you know, within the um, duration of 10 to 11 days, the entire country was changed. On the final day when the Taliban took over Kabul, I received messages saying like, oh, they're in, you know, what do we do? And I didn't know what to expect. And I didn't have an answer. I burst out crying because for me, mainly it, the memories of the civil war came back. Mm. And I thought that there would likely be danger for our family because if there is a street by street fight against the Taliban from the government, that means that so many civilians will die. Thankfully, again, that didn't happen. That bloodshed wasn't there. But that's exactly what sort of so many people were thinking about. We want to take you back to those memories of your childhood in Kabul mm. and your father was a shopkeeper. You were the eldest child. What are your earliest memories? How can you describe that time? So the first five years, most of the time I remember, um, the dotted memories are of me hiding in cellars from the bombs and the rockets. Right. The two happy memories that I can recall, one is being taken by my mother to a local park with my cousins to have an ice cream. And another one is for my father kneeling down in his military uniform to give me a big kite. And then he suddenly disappeared because he had to flee the military service. Um, anybody who was under the age of 40 had to serve in the military. And that usually meant a death sentence because they would be sent to the front line to fight the Mujahideen. Mm. And my father didn't want to kill his fellow Afghans. So he had to hide in mountains in Loga province. Um, and we had to stay in Kabul, raised by my mother, um, the entire family. We had very little uh, to do. With, and that was the rent that we got from the front shops was all she had to buy food and buy some clothes um, from the streets to keep us warm. And during the night, did the bombs go off the whole time? Was that, I mean, did it mm. feel like you were constantly under pressure that you could die at any time? Kabul was relatively calm. Uh, during the Afghan-Soviet conflict. But that still didn't mean that the bombs were not there. So on the outskirts, there were bombs, rockets. And usually myself, as well as my sisters, they would ask mum, what's happening? And she would say, oh, it's just fireworks. But again, those fireworks never went away. Every other night or every three, four nights, there was some sort of bombing. She said, oh, don't worry. You know, the soldiers you see outside or the tanks, they're not for us. But sometimes they would come in the, and ask for where my dad was because he deserted the military. He left. He fled. So it was constant danger, although my mother managed tactfully to just give us that hope that, no, it wasn't the it case. It must have been terrifying as a child. Mm. It was terrifying. I think it became more terrifying later on when I was trying to make sense of the world because I was born into war. And for me, when I was age 9, 10, when we came back uh, from uh, Pakistan as refugees and the civil war started 92 and 94 that's when I tried to make sense what's the purpose of living mm. when is it going to end because at that point the fireworks wouldn't do for me mm. and when I was were, seeing the misery when you were at that first time what's difficult for people to understand is when did your parents make mm. the decision to flee because that's the hardest thing isn't it is when do you go do you mm. stay it's a sort of hideous mm. kind of choice that you, you you don't know what's the right thing to do. How did your dad suddenly say, right, we've got to get out of this? What, what was the moment that triggered it? I'm not sure if there is a particular moment. I think for many people, when they flee their countries, they leave their homes and their loved ones. That is one of the toughest decisions. They wouldn't take that lightly. So it's accumulation of factors, usually 
for us, it was my father was in hiding from the military, and that meant that when he was in Logar province, still the military tried to seek him out, him as well as many other people who deserted military as well as Mujahideen, and that usually meant they would kill him. But for us as well, being not being able to see father and not being able to um, live freely in Kabul, we were hiding as well from all those questions, persecution and so on. So these are the big factors is life-threatening um, situations, persecution, that makes people finally make that decision to leave everything behind uh, and, and take that really dangerous journey, which we did, to go to Pakistan. And what was it like? Because your, your younger siblings must hardly have been old enough to be able to walk. Do, what mm. was the emotions you were feeling as you made that journey? Well, it started with us going to Loga province, that we would go every three to four months to visit father and spend some time with him. It was just like one of those journeys. On this occasion, my mother took a few more um, equipment or, or whatever, belongings, and we didn't ask her. But there were men in Loga province, they were sitting, sitting around in, in one of the balconies and they tried to to, to talk it over, you know, how they would go and so on. Still, as children, we didn't know what was happening. They wouldn't tell us much. And finally, one uh, afternoon, we saw that these horses are coming and all the women were baking so much food. Uh, that food was mainly bread, mm. that rounded bread in the oven. Mm. Uh, it's very tasty. Um, and that was it. Um, they said, OK, we're going. So for us, we asked them, I asked my father, where are we going? And said, oh, just just behind that mountain that you see there, we'll be together, we'll be safer. So for me, it was just a mixture of excitement as well, getting on a horse and oh. then going, you know, what is after that mountain? But that mountain never ended that, that soon. It took us seven days and seven oh. Oh. nights uh, on donkeys and horses. I managed to get a white horse. I was really persistent <laughs> on that white horse. I, I loved them. Uh, and, it and soon sounded sort of terror, didn't it? Because the gunships started targeting you. I mean, that must mm. be incredible, age five, to feel that you're under attack from the air. Yeah, so anybody who was taking that journey from Afghanistan to Pakistan, like so many other refugees, they had to take not the normal routes because they were closed, so they couldn't take the um, Khyber Pass they had to go through mountains where the Mujahideen would usually bring weapons. And that's why anybody who was seen through that route, the government forces would take them down, would, okay. would destroy them mm. with the helicopter gunships and the jets. And we came under the attack three times. Mm. On one occasion was when my dad, he uh, tried to protect me in an oven from the um, helicopter gunship and the jets and covered me completely. And he told me that if anything happened to him, that for me to take the family, entire family, back to Kabul. Oh my goodness! Um, and so that he, was, was, he hid you inside the oven. What? He did. So the ovens in Afghanistan in villages are usually on in the ground. Mm. That's where they bake bread, and so there is room. Uh, it's round, and there's plenty of room there that where you can hide. So in the village, one morning when we were travelling to Peshawar city, we stopped to find shelter somewhere we could uh, stay during the day to hide. Mm. But sadly, we were spotted, and that's when my father, uh, women and children, the horses were all under trees, but we were spotted midway between a village and them. So my father decided not to go back to the children and women. They, he decided to go with the other men straight to the village and to find a room mm. where they could um, hide me. And the fact that he protected mm. you so much, in some ways that's almost like a superpower, isn't it? That sense that 
your father would do anything for you, that he was prepared to lay down his life to protect you. Did, did you sense that as a five-year-old, that he was there for you? I did, and I'm very grateful, obviously, for that. Um, I think also because I was the eldest son. Um, for me, I immediately got a sense that I was second in command. If anything had happened to age my dad, five. age five, that I would be. And, and, and on reflection, I think that was the beginning of the loss of my childhood as well, combined with what was happening. But I had to think differently. I had to think all the time that, you know, if, if father is not there, how would I provide food? Um, where would I lead the family? I didn't have the answers, but that was my thought process. When you arrived in the refugee camp, what was it like? Because I remember I went to report on it, but it, mm. it's so different when you're reporting. You don't understand mm. whether you instinctively felt safer there or whether it was still quite a dangerous place to be. And, and you got mm. very ill sort of how you coped, really, even aged five, you must have felt some sense of what it was like. People felt safe when they arrived in refugee camps, like millions of um, Afghan refugees when they landed in Peshawar. They would go to one of the refugee camps, depending where the relatives were or where they knew, or they had some sort of connection. So my father took us to one refugee camp called Babu. We started living in a tent to start with. Conditions were absolutely inhumane when I see them now. Just in a tent, a big family, you don't have food. The Russians that were given by UN refugee agency or some other aid organizations, that wasn't enough. Um, but you also see that there are so many other people as well. So kind of you make out a living in, in those desperate situations. And for us, I think it was important to be safe. So the trade-off was we either die in Afghanistan or we are safe in a refugee camp with inhumane conditions. Your parents must have been terrified mm. when you got ill. Yeah, so immediately when we arrived in the in refugee camp, um, most of us got malaria. But within three months was when I started coughing. Immediately they thought it could be just one of those viral infections mm. or the typical you know, children's infection that will go away. It didn't. Um, I started losing weight. I got so skinny that I was like a walking skeleton. I didn't have the energy to even walk. Uh, and I would get tired. Um, and then I was, when I was coughing, I would even bring a blood from time to time. So then they got very scared. They took me to a local refugee doctor. I saw that there was a huge line outside for his uh, surgery, which was a muddy room. So we waited for it for ages. And when I went in there, there was a little lamp. This man was there. But he still, I could see that he was, still had a bit of that smile on his face. And I would begin to think, that the beginning of my curiosity with medicine, like, why is this guy smiling? You know, this is hot and humid and there's so much big line to him. But then he, when he examined me, he told my dad that um, it was serious. I had to be taken somewhere to a lung specialist. Then he took me to a lung specialist in um, Peshawar City. And uh, he, they, um, he diagnosed me to have tuberculosis. Mm. And didn't the doctor give you a stethoscope? He, do you think he saw something yeah. in you even then? I was curious because on on reflection now, because I'd seen so much misery, but I could see that this doctor, when he was treating me, initially he gave 60-70% chance of me dying because I was so malnourished, but my father didn't give up on me. Again, he worked extremely hard, went away from home just to be able to afford um, some meat, fruit uh, and milk for me. And that helped me 
get my strength back and my cough was settling down with medication. So I saw that this guy is healing me mm. and I became inspired by him. And he was very kind and answering my questions every time I would go in. I prepared my list of questions. <laughs> um, and then on one occasion, he gave me um, a stethoscope and a black and white textbook. I didn't know what it was in it, but uh, there were medical images and said, well, I can see that you might become a doctor, so you might need these. And then when you uh, left the refugee camp, you went to stay with relatives. That was the first time, really, that you must have seen a TV or seen the outside world, because it must have been so insular world mm -hmm. for so long that you probably didn't realise that not everywhere was a war zone. Yes. Yeah, so, so when uh, I was diagnosed with tuberculosis, the doctor advised my dad that I, we had to change locations, go somewhere where there's a little bit better living conditions. And that meant upgrading from a tent to a muddy room. Um, and we went there to uh, that muddy room where my grandparents were living. They left it for us. So our neighbours were from Pakistan. They were very kind. They gave us electricity, one line of electricity. That meant we had a fan for once uh, when temperatures was up to 45 degrees. That meant that we, we could sleep mm -hmm. in peace. But also they had a TV there. So from time to time, I would just uh, my, my mother would put me on the wall that muddy wall to have a uh, peek through mm. that and they would kind of just put it outside as well for every year because it was hot so usually they would sit around the TV and there were some very serious going on I was a big fan of the um, uh, Mike Knight Rider <laughs> serious at that time and I so desperately wanted uh, a remote controlled car after I never, <laughs> I never got one but yeah I, I got a peek of what the outside world was like but it was still imaginary for me Mm. And then in 91, you went back mm. to Kabul. Why was that? Is, can you just explain that sort of sense mm. of the pull to return home for lots of refugees? Well, in Pakistan, people were kind to us. They um, allowed us safety. They give us, a, even if it's refugee camps, they give us all that. But it wasn't home for us. Mm. Um, and, and the conditions were absolutely inhumane. Uh, and also, we were away from our relatives we and, and the weather condition were extremely harsh. Um, so my father, as soon as he turned forty, he was uh, allowed to not be, you know, taken to military service. He could just do whatever he wanted to. That's when he decided that okay, we're going to go back to Afghanistan. So ninety one was when we repatriated back, and that between ninety one and ninety two, before the civil war started, was well, that one year when I had a peek into uh, some sort of normality of life, began to have friends at school, got to school and got my first uh, football. <laughs> uh, for that age, uh, I was 91, seven, eight, um, nine. Yes. What was mm. school like then? Because it must have been almost the first time you'd gone. Did you, did you get really excited by it or were you like horrified at the idea that you suddenly had to start doing times tables and things? So in Pakistan, refugee camp was first when I went to school after my tuberculosis started settling. Uh, I went for a few months there. We were sitting in a muddy room. We were doing times table and we had a chalk and a board, um, sort of a, a wooden board that we would write on it. So that was the beginning of my education there. In Afghanistan, we went to a proper school that between 91 and 92, Amani High School. And for the first time, I saw class that students were coming in they were better dressed and there were chairs. And that I felt amazing. And that's when I got excited that, wow, you know, I could actually become a doctor, you know, coming to school. And that was the beginning of me starting to pursue 
uh, the journey of medicine as well. But sadly, it was uh, short-lived. It was one year. Mm. And did your sisters go to school at that point as well? They did started going uh, at that time. And they started going, but everything stopped in 92 when the civil war broke out. And then did you flee again? In 92, we were in the house and then obviously the situation was deteriorating. The Mujahideen were advancing and the ex-president Najibullah's government was starting to crumble. And one um, morning we listened to the radio and it was saying that the government has fallen and the Mujahideen was getting closer. And there was seven or more than seven groups of them coming from various directions to take the presidential palace and to take the power. Uh, and that was the beginning of uh, civil war, a street by street fight. We had to leave because the fighting was getting closer. The sound of the rockets, the bombs was getting closer. And we knew our house was a bit slightly closer to the presidential palace. So we had to just flee. We left everything there and uh, we started running, um, just following my parents. They would decide instantly which way might be uh, oh. safer. So that I still can't believe how they could make those decisions in split seconds. Um, we would even overstep dead bodies. We would just hide under the wall for moments until we get instructions from our parents, go that way or this way. Uh, the GPS was usually looking at the sky like, or hearing which side the bombing is more and just go the other way. And were you literally yeah. running down the uh, uh, Yes, streets? yes. Well, and, Were you terrified that one of you was going to trip up? Because some of the siblings must have been tiny. Yes, and I, I, I still don't know how my parents did it, uh, and that's why I call uh, my parents, you know, super people. Uh, my mother's superwoman, and my dad's superman. And were they carrying to be some able of your to siblings? Yeah, they must. They would be carrying siblings, and that's the story of so many other Afghans or people who are in conflict zones that they are on on a continuous fight or flight response. And they, it's just that adrenaline you're going through your body. You don't think about anything else except how to stay alive. Mm. And did you feel mm. that even as a boy, that that sense? You said that you felt very responsible. Your father had mm. said you were the oldest son. Did you feel that when, as you were fleeing the second time that you had to take care of your younger siblings? I did actually on a continuous basis. Every evening when we would arrive somewhere, we would have a little meeting in the evening around food or maybe even if we didn't have food we just sit down what do we do next and I was part of that meeting with my mother and my elder sisters to make that decision shall we stay here or what are the pros what are the cons what to do next mm. or where would the food come in or where would you know the money would come in shall we go to Pakistan all those decisions and we had to change them because the the fighting scenery would change so rapidly in Kabul city and around the country between 92 and 96, uh, when the Civil War was there, until the Taliban took over. And you ended up back in a refugee camp. Was it the same refugee camp? Did you feel a sense that nothing was progressing? Yes, we went back to um, Pakistan. So people were fleeing from one part of the city to another, one part of the country to the other. Uh, and then some people, including ourselves, we decided, you know, enough is enough. It's, it's, it's not going to be any peace anytime soon, let's go back to Pakistan so at least we can have some sort of normality. So we, we went to a different refugee camp called Shamshatu. We started residing there. Um, I, and that's where I started to get some sort of education uh, the second time around when I went to Pakistan. And how did you manage to have that amazing drive and ambition mm. the whole way through that propelled you to want to be a doctor mm. when so many other children 
floundering. I mean, it must be almost impossible in those situations in 45 degree heat to keep thinking, I want to get out, I want to make something of my life. Mm. For me, it was combination. One hand, um, I was inspired, so I had a dream to become a doctor. But on the other hand, there were lack of opportunities. So everywhere I was going, even the second time round when I went to uh, the refugee camp, I started educating myself, going through some courses, and got into a university, in quotation mark, age 13. But that all university was only to educate people um, to, to serve in that refugee camp. The certificate was not valid outside. Another reason I would say is that the power of healing in medicine, that everywhere you see is trauma, everywhere you see is misery. But then you go to this surgery, which is a muddy room of this doctor sitting there, and he can actually do something. So I found that extremely rewarding uh, on reflection, I think at a time as well, that it is just maybe a source of happiness that temporary happiness that you are there and you're trying to treat people. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and the refugee and Doctor of the Year, Wahid Arian. We'll be back after this. He fled to the UK. So I called him. I went to their house. They gave me his number. I called him. I said, like, how did you go to the UK? And he said, oh, I went to this um, travel agent and he got me out from there. You have to pay them. Uh, so I asked some other questions. You know, how is it there? Can you work? Can you study? He said, yeah, people are nice there. They will welcome you. You can go to college. I don't go to college, but, you know, I drive a taxi, but you can do. So for me, that was dream. So I then went to those agents. First of all, I would just tell them, oh, I want to go to uh, Dubai or somewhere. And then the, the conversation would start. Oh, do you get, by the way, do you send people to um, UK, America or somewhere else? And they would just look at me suspiciously like, I said, mm, just go to the back. We'll have another chat. <sighs> uh, and at the back was when they would deal uh, about, you know, getting you out. I was very 
adamant that I wouldn't take an illegal route. I said, can you get me a refugee visa? So I was asking them. We didn't know where to find, you know, a refugee visa. I said, yeah, we can get you a refugee visa. It will cost you $10,000. They will give you a price for various countries. So how did you find the money? We didn't have the money, so I had to convince my parents. So I found the agents. I built a report with them. Um, and then I went to my parents in 99 when I was 15, really begged them to, to allow me to go. And they sold the house, um, the gold, everything they had to get $10,000. Uh, and that was it. I had oh. to say goodbye to my mother one morning. And um, my father just came with me from Kabul to Peshawar uh, to go and uh, trade or make the deal with this uh, agent. It's extraordinary because it... it the fact they sold absolutely mm. everything means there was so much responsibility, wasn't mm. there? When you were their one big hope to get out. It was. And, and that's why when later on I landed in the UK, there was so much pressure on me. Uh, and I did uh, a stupid thing on the plane trying to burn my passport because um, the agent, uh, well, the smuggler um, in hindsight. So he he told us when you get to the UK, you dump your passport and you go to the to them and tell them, you know, to the police that you're a refugee. Mm. They will take you in. But on the plane was a couple of other guys who were with me. They tried to burn their passports. Um, so they successfully did. I was the third one going into the toilet. <laughs> so the smoke was already there. Oh, and that okay. had triggered an alarm. Uh, and that meant that um, the, the stewardess came in and they um, took me and they put me in the front and they'd call the police. So when we landed in Heathrow, there were several vans waiting for us uh, to take us in. And at that point was exactly when I felt the responsibility that they had sold everything. And I, there I was making a stupid decision, you know, not to follow the instructions. I did something different. So it was the weight of the world on me, mm. thinking that, you know, I would be deported back. I would lose the money. And that meant with that every hope that my parents had as well for a better future for them and for myself. So what happened to you? Where did you mm. get taken by the police? I was taken to a police station in the Heathrow Terminal 4 uh, to be questioned. Um, I was so desperate, I told them, listen, I'm a refugee. And I didn't know you know, what to do. I thought this was a refugee visa. I said, it's not a refugee visa, it's a dodgy passport you have. Oh. So they had taken me for that and you tried to burn it So on the plane. So, oh. so they, these were the charges. Uh, and that's why they took me to Fulton. Mm. Uh, to younger um, offenders institute, and what was that like? Because um, that's an incredibly um, difficult place to be. I mean, it's a, it, you, know, you must have felt not only could you not really speak the language, but you were surrounded by people who probably didn't really want you to be there and didn't, you know, have much affinity with you. For me, it was quite posh actually coming from Afghanistan because <laughs> 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 uh, there was a bed uh, and um, we had food. So for me, I think it was a huge upgrade. Um, I wasn't too bothered mm -hmm. by all that. I just uh, was writing frantically everything I could, and I was doing my push-ups, set-ups, and my exercise. And Did they think you were quite extraordinary? Because it must be very different to see this child that just wanted to get an education and get out and start working. Well, after the, um, I had an amazing barrister who who fought for me, um, and and he, uh, the judge, when he dropped the charges, then it was completely unreal for me to be able to, to walk freely outside. But that was the beginning of a, a new life for me, starting from zero. But I did have a dream 
to become a doctor. And I sat around um, in a flat sharing with other refugees. So I asked them for direction what to do with my life. So they sat around. So they asked me, okay, Wahid, listen, you know, you've come from Afghanistan. We know that, you know, you're desperate to get an education, but be realistic. Your family needs money. The best thing for you to do is um, work in a chicken shop, then uh, drive a taxi, and then hopefully you will own a chicken shop. So that will be a financial freedom pathway. I value the advice because these are hardworking jobs. I admire them. But uh, my vision was not to become a chicken wing specialist. So it was to <laughs> mm. become a doctor. So how did you mm. move into education? The way I worked out was I went straight to universities. To um, I went to uh, King's University. I still remember knocking on the door of admissions office and saying like, oh, I want to become a doctor. <laughs> and they looked at me. I've got which no school? qualifications. <laughs> which school do you go to? I said, I don't go to school. I just want to know how do I be- you know, become a doctor. But they were still nice to me in a way that they guided me. They said, okay, this is our prospectus have a look this is our requirement and that was it i highlighted the requirement you need gcc english at least and you have a levels and so on so in 2000 i went for uh, um, the pre-a level test to see if i could pass that and i just borderline passed it uh, so they the education that i got at the um, shamshatu camp and so on that helped uh, to to get me uh, off the mark there but 2000 i got two as levels uh, in mock exam i got a d and I immediately knew that I was in deep trouble mm. because if I wanted to become a doctor, I had to get an A. Mm. So I just frankly uh, searched for ways to get my marks up and I asked other people, how do you do it? So, well, if you do pass papers, that will help you and you have to really work hard. So I ordered whatever pass papers I could find. Uh, I think my whole room was full of pass papers. So you had no teacher at all? I didn't have a, a, a personal teacher, but I did go to the college. Mm. And usually I would miss classes as well because I had to go to work. So I was one of those completely, you know, chaotic uh, students that coming late, leaving early. Teachers would tell me off from time to time. But in the end, I managed to get an A uh, in biology uh, as well as in, in chemistry. And that A was pretty high. It was 98%. And the teacher was absolutely <laughs> gobsmacked. It's like, <laughs> because I'd done so many past papers <laughs> in chemistry that the questions were pretty easy for me by then. And then he said, you know what? I don't know what method you use. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. Just come to practicals. Uh, and I kept using the same method. And then I took four more ASs because I wanted to prove to university that I don't have GCC, but I have done so much more in AS level mm-hmm. um, and A levels. Then I, I got A's in them as well. The teachers were, again, very nice to me. They just let me off the hook <laughs> uh, to just do whatever I did. Um fleeing between or going from one college to another divided them in three colleges uh, to accommodate my working schedule into it as well and I got three A's which are actually A stars for now to get to Cambridge University in 2003 I mean that's amazing so you've got three A's at A level Mm. and then you applied to Cambridge but how did you know about Cambridge how did you Mm. decide that was the university you wanted to go to because it's quite hard I mean it's it's difficult for anyone to work out what to do, but the fact that you worked out that you wanted to go there is pretty extraordinary, age sort of 17, 18. Well, I, initially I didn't know about Cambridge much. I knew about, uh, of the reputation. Um, so the colleges where I, where I went to, nobody would speak about Cambridge in the first place. Uh, nobody would speak about medicine even. So the fact that I was applying for medicine, the teachers were absolutely you know thrilled that we have somebody who, who does it. 
Um, but then one day when I was doing British gas salesman job, and that was one of the other jobs, <laughs> that uh, I uh, in the team leader's house, uh, we were preparing to go out to attack people's houses and knocking on the doors. There was a guy who had come in from Cambridge University and he'd uh, finished his studies and he told me, like, I'm a graduate from there. Um, he was from Pakistan, a friend of the um, uh, British gas leader who was from Afghanistan. And he told me, well, you've got A's in AES. Why don't you apply to Cambridge? And I said, oh, no, come on. I mean, you know, I have not privately educated. And so on. I said, let me take you. So I took his um, invitation. We went to Cambridge University one day and I was absolutely, uh, I fell in love with it immediately. I saw that it was beautiful because I'd seen some movies by then. Yeah, uh, you know, a beautiful mind, and that, and that just brought memories of what Cambridge would be like. And I knew that so many Nobel um, Prize winners were there, or, and so much history. So I, I decided immediately that I, I would apply uh, to Cambridge University. But the fact that I yeah, came from Afghanistan—that you have to make split decisions, mm. and, and you have to not think too hard as well—and I think that helped. Um, and I didn't have much to lose. But when I was preparing, I asked one of the tutors to help me uh, prepare for it. Um, he took me to one room and he told me immediately that um, you're a refugee, you're not um, white, and you haven't even had your GCSEs. So I strongly suggest you don't apply. So he gave me all the reasons why I shouldn't apply. And why did you ignore yeah. him? When I came out, um, I actually burst out crying there because somebody reminded me of the realities you know, for me, usually I, I imagine what I want to achieve, skipping that reality as well. Even now when I'm doing a project, I usually think about having done the project. But then I, I, I just told myself, that I give myself a pep talk that, listen, if I've survived the Soviet bombs, I'm not going to be put off by Cambridge. <laughs> so that was it. Um, and that fired me up. I went home, I circled Cambridge first. I said, that's it, decision is made. <laughs> I will prove him wrong. And I went uh, found a book how to get into university to start preparing myself uh, for the questions that would come in. So did uh, anyone hence, know that you were a refugee or did you try and hide that from people? Uh, except my tutors. Um, my tutors knew, but except them, nobody else knew. Uh, and I pretended that I had come on a... I was sponsored by my uncle and I'd come, you know, from a well-to-do family. Hence, I started dressing well in Cambridge to fit in. I was called a mysterious guy this, who comes in because I didn't even know how to interact. I hadn't been on holiday to talk about a holiday or I hadn't seen a lot of the movies or the conversations every time I would go silent. So for me, I, I was just like, uh, fine on my own. But it did um, hit me that um, when I would see parents or students coming in every month or so to bring in food and so on, I felt isolated and I felt that, you know what, I don't fit in at all. Mm. But the fact that I was coming from Afghanistan and I had that resilience in me and, and, and that gratitude as well, that I'm safe, I'm happy to be here and, and this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I have to use every bit of it, that kept me going. So how did you meet your wife, Davina? Mm. So when I made that decision that I would be staying in the UK and this is where home will be for me, uh, and then I uh, kept an open mind to meet somebody. <laughs> and that's when I met Davina in 2010. Uh, it was a friend of mine, Mark, who we were trying to catch up. 
I'd become a doctor in 2010, having graduated from Cambridge Imperial and having done a scholarship at Harvard. So it was uh, some time that I hadn't met him. We met up and we were deciding in the middle of um, the night where to go. And he said, oh, I, I know this um, hotel called Barclay Hotel. They've got a tea room where we can go there. But he also had somewhere else in mind, so we had to decide. And we decided on Barclay, and that's where where I met Davina. She was a supervisor. Mm-hmm. And um, I met her, and, uh, and then I invited her for a coffee. And did you tell her about your background or not? Were you still quite nervous about explaining it to people? I didn't tell about my background to even Davina for m- quite a few years. Um, she is... Um, uh, very open personality and uh, extremely personable and I started trusting her more and more than I could you know confide in her the more I knew that she would be my future wife and and, and then she said oh my god you know you you should write you know your story you you should write a book Mm. and she would even tease me like oh my god I could just see that film coming I was like whoa what are you talking about (laughs) there are so many others like me they're like no 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 it's just like it's 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 different you know can you just and and that encouraged me to speak about it but the more i talked about it the the better i felt and that was encouraging in itself because that was in a way a self therapy for me that talking about it because that I, sense of split mm, identity must have a huge psychological toll what i think that was what a tipping point did it, have on you? it was that was a tipping off point for it i think the traumas are deep rooted and they are so deep rooted that the symptoms or signs will creep up from time to time mm. in form of hypervigilance, nightmares, flashbacks, PTSD or anxiety. Even in the class, I couldn't get up and speak up because I thought that, wow, somebody is going to just blow my head, a sniper. So these are not normal reactions to mm. um, you know, normal situations, abnormal reactions to normal situations. That's the definition of PTSD. Um, but I didn't get assessed properly for it. And hence, I'm very um, a big advocate of mental health. Mm. Uh, something I'm working on is called um, Aryan Wellbeing now, to try to bring in psychologists, psychiatrists, physical therapists, everybody under one umbrella to provide mental health support to people who pass COVID, who've suffered from trauma, mm. as well as to refugees as well. Mm. That's my next project. But that's the reason why I'm passionate about it is that I've suffered from it for a very long time. And mm. a lot of the refugees now I see I see the exact same scenario, as well as people who passed COVID as well. Many people are traumatized. So what do you feel Mm. when you see the refugees fleeing across the channel Mm. on those tiny boats, overburdened and laden with people? For me, it immediately reminds me the fact that they, they must be so desperate to leave their country, to leave their homes the same way as I was. We wouldn't leave our homes to take that journey through Pakistan seven days, seven nights. That we would be killed. Um, it's it's not a similar journey. Um, they're crossing the channel, but they're taking that risk in their lives the same way as we did, because we were fleeing persecution and life-threatening situation, and they do the same. And for them to come here, for example, to the UK, um, a lot of the time it is a link that gives them a hope. For me, it was Hakim. And and for me, the fact that I could speak a bit of English, that gave me hope that you go somewhere completely unknown. You want to start your life from zero. So anything is an, an extraordinary bonus. And is that why um, you set up the charity? Mm. Because you, you could have just become a 
successful doctor and mm. lived in Chester and had a lovely life and your children that you now have who are gorgeous um, could you did you feel that that wasn't enough that you'd feel too guilty is that why you set up the charity to help other refugees yes for me it was always always um, the aim was to give back to the society and also to give back to the people uh, who are vulnerable like I was so I started going back to Afghanistan in 2010 every time I would visit my family I would go to hospitals to help in any way I could but then I soon realised there were so many other doctors in the NHS they wanted to help as well and that kept inspiring me kept motivating me because it's not just myself that I saw that wow there are others who want to help as well so that I would say that collective compassion is, is what kept propelling me to do seek out better routes of connecting them until I came across telemedicine and I saw that um, the wide usage of smartphones in Afghanistan in 2015 as well as the social media Viber and Skype so I fused the two together uh, and I founded Aryan Teleheal which is a pioneering charity that connects doctors from the NHS and across the world now to doctors in Afghanistan but the reason behind it is one for me to give and then uh, to connect others who want to give as well mm. and, and then it started uh, kind of taking a very um, exponentially networking effect and it must have been extraordinary just as you felt you were maybe that, that covid was easing up that then mm. afghanistan explodes it must mm. have been i mean i can't imagine how you must have felt when you heard that your family might be under threat there because mm. you can't really cope with one situation and another on top of it very easily i mean it must have been really complicated mm. wasn't it the COVID situation in Afghanistan is very heartbreaking. We don't see it on the news here, but people are suffering. People are dying from it. Mm. Um, they don't have vaccine. You know, we're really fortunate here, and it's it's to to have vaccine. We even talk about boosters. We talk about giving it to our teenagers, but that's the sad reality in Afghanistan. On top of that, it's the conflict that started, and hence professionally, it's been very heartbreaking for me to be seeing COVID cases coming through our smartphones. On top of that, um, trauma cases coming from recent conflict, and it adds so much more stress, personally for me as well, because I can relate to them. I know exactly what kind of conditions they live in. So did part of you mm. wish you were there for the evacuation at the airport, helping people to get out and, mm. and there in the hospitals now? Part of me, yes. Part of me, also for my family as well, just to be able to give my dad a hug. Uh, my mother passed away last year, so he, he's, she was the rock of the family, and I could just see the whole family disintegrating as well. Mm. Sisters, frankly, trying to find answers they couldn't. Uh, my brothers, and my father, um, and and hence I was really I wished that I was there, close to them, to sleep, sit down like one of those days when we were in conflict zone or in refugee camp around, and tell them, listen, let's do this, this, this and the next day will be better. I try to do that and still do it on the phone whenever I get messages, but I don't have answers. Mm. And how do you feel about having one Doctor of the Year? I'm not sure that could even have come into your dream. You probably didn't know it existed. I didn't know it existed, so they approached me and they said, we're going to put you forward to this. So I completely uh, put it to one side because we're dealing with pandemic on one hand. We were also dealing with um, Afghanistan situation. Sometimes I didn't even reply to the emails. They were so delayed and the journalists will kind of just put, kept asking me again and again, can you send me this? Can you send me that? Um, and then later on, I, I realized that this is quite a serious thing. 
uh, and then suddenly they told me that you're uh, one of the finalists and uh, that's when I took it a bit seriously that mm. okay I'm one of the finalists uh, and then what they said like well can you circle in your diary that you know that you need to come in to, to this an event uh, in in London again I didn't take it that seriously but um, when I saw the list of people attending uh, that was just uh, a few days to to the event uh, when uh, I saw wow okay this is a big national event it's happening but for me I think this healthcare awards it was a collective celebration of everybody's hard work I know I was I'm very humbled and honored to say that you know they awarded me the best doctor category but I don't know how they could say that because there's so many doctors who helped as well I think it was a collective work that we did but I'm very proud that many doctors helped me help people in Afghanistan in Syria in in India in African countries throughout the pandemic as well and that I'm very proud of what would you say to your 12 year old mm. self in the refugee camp keep on going Wahid uh, you know um, three years down the line you will be somewhere safer you'll be somewhere where you could see the opportunities that you you can't see now um, I was um, and and you would be somewhere where you could actually start that reaching for that dream in refugee camp I had none of that you know I wasn't safe enough I um, couldn't find a window or an opportunity or, or a door to my dream but as soon as I landed here in the UK, I had that. And hence I was using every opportunity, every minute, um, every ounce of my energy uh, not to not to leave any stone unturned in pursuit of my dream to become a doctor and uh, heal other people. Wahid Ariane, thank you very much for talking to us on Past Imperfect. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and the Refugee and Doctor of the Year, Wahid Arian. This has been a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.